Welcome to the Learn B12 Fast podcast, the podcast where we apply the science of mastering skills faster, stories of successful people, life hacking concepts, and other cool stuff to the sport of beach volleyball. If you're someone who is serious about getting better at the sport and wouldn't mind accelerating your learning curve and career with ideas that have been previously hard to find within the beach volleyball space, you'll probably like it in here. I'm Alex, the host of the podcast as well as the creator of the bigger Learn Beach Fall Fast project. Now, let's get started. What's up and welcome back to the podcast. This episode is a player interview. I'm interviewing Nate Semliak, who is a Slovenian World Tour player and also someone who's involved in beach volleyball in many other ways. <laughs> so basically, this is uh, two volley nerds unleashed. So what happened, what ended up happening is another very long conversation. It went on for almost three hours. So I decided to split this uh, talk up into two episodes and you are now listening to the first one. We ended up talking about a lot of different things. So in the beginning, we talk about transfer between sports and sports psychology and how to grow the sport, etc., etc. And I thought for maybe some listeners, it's relevant. After a while, I do turn the conversation more into like how to play beach volleyball. <laughs> so we also ended up talking uh, servicey floats versus top spin. A lot of thoughts around servicey, blocking, attacking, defense. And whatnot. So, so there's really, I think, a little bit of something for everyone in uh, these two episodes in this talk. And about two weeks after I recorded the episode, I re-listened to it, and I realized that this is a thought-provoking conversation. So basically, what happened in my mind it was that just by re-listening to what I said, what what he said, a lot of new thoughts grew in my mind, uh, like. I would today want to ask him different questions. I both agree and disagree with things that I said myself, etc. So (laughs) thought-provoking, I think, is good because it leads to new questions, new things to explore. And uh, that is what I believe this episode is. So I think that's enough background info, except there's one more thing. Right before I started recording, Nates had shared that later that same day he was going to go play soccer or football, depending on what you say, where you're from. So with that in mind, uh, let's get started. <laughs> That's what I think. I miss that kind of stuff. It's now because you're, like, you're always training. So then you know you're always sort of, if you do physical activity, it's either beach volleyball or it's something that's going to help you with beach volleyball. So gym. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I basically left out all of my other sports that I love doing. So anything from like badminton, paddle, soccer, basketball, I love playing all of them. Yeah, yeah. But it's just so you just don't do that often. So now it's sort of like the off season where you play it like once or twice. Uh-huh. So you take advantage of it. But it's also like I know that my body wouldn't be good for it. So. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, actually, <laughs> I just happened to play record just now. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, but that's actually interesting. Do you do you feel like you you learn stuff from the other sports that you do you sometimes get like unexpected lessons from the other sports? Mm, I would say not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, I think now it's uh, 
I don't know, maybe it was different before, but now it feels like if you, if I do training, then I want to do like sports specific training. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if I really like, you know, me going playing soccer or paddle or going playing badminton at a, you know, pretty average level. Yeah. Uh, would really benefit me in something where you're like striving a little bit more towards like this is going to, no, I don't want to say perfection, but you know, where you're striving towards like, you know, executing the move at a pretty high level. So I don't see that many. It's actually more that I take something that I know from my sport helps me in the other sports. In the other sport, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I think the knowledge in the other sport, it's way too low to help me with, with beach volleyball, essentially. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, uh, th- but did you say that before, earlier? It might have been, I'm not sure, but uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a believer that you, you do like specific stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and so, if you want to get better at running, you run. If you want to get better at uh, playing beach volleyball, you play beach volleyball. Yeah. And then also, you know, there's also this. There was always this debate. You know, if you should do like sport-specific exercises in the gym, for example. Yeah. I think it goes to a certain extent, but you don't you don't train your passing platform in the gym. You know, you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get uh, faster, stronger uh, in the gym, and that then applies to your. Uh, to your sport, but you don't you don't train your pl- uh, technique. For example, you don't you don't become a better technical setter and not a better technical yeah, passer yeah. in the gym. No, but so I think there's there's I think those cross functions they're they're not as big as usually people give them or like some people try to yeah yeah that's, give them credit to yeah yeah I think it's a little bit both uh, and and that's actually a, a new thought if. I think maybe the the closer to a top level of a sport you are, mm-hmm. the less benefit you're gonna get from other sports. Yeah. Uh, because if if you take a complete, like if you take a complete beginner beach volleyball player, like mm-hmm. I can at, at least usually see if they have played tennis or soccer or something before mm-hmm. because they know how to move their bodies better. Mm-hmm. They uh, just have better body control awareness. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like sometimes people that have been very competitive in other sports mm-hmm. can sometimes be better mentally as well i think but i think it goes like but they also they did another sport at a higher level mm-hmm. so and now they're like trying to apply some of that to a sport where they're at a much lower level so then it sometimes crashes so there, there are benefits from it but i don't know if it's necessarily that like now you know you're trying to be for example a professional in hockey and you go and play tennis as a recreational player, you know, and then all of a sudden you're gonna be, you're gonna be better at hockey. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it could happen that you take a valuable lesson from it, but I think it's very rare, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest time into it. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I think you know training. I think when I was in the states, there was you know this kind of a saying amongst coaches always that. If you want to become a better server, the best thing is to go surf. You know, yeah, if you yeah. want to become a better passer, the best thing is to go surf, pass, mm-hmm. set and hit. So th- for everything that you wanted to improve, the best drill was to do surf, pass, set, yeah. hit, and then, you know, maybe even play defense against it. But yeah. those, this was always like the more, the more it's the actual environment of what you want to, want to learn, um, the better it is. Yeah. So we always like try to do stuff that was very very much specific to the skill that we're trying to learn but also in the game environment of it so mm-hmm. that was always uh, yeah 
So for me, doing the, like I said, other sports, it's, it's nice to do something else every once in a while to, you know, challenge other muscles, to challenge your mind a little bit. But I don't think there's like so huge benefits to, yeah. to the actual sport that you're trying to learn. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, makes sense. So I don't know if the recording start before or after you said, but you said that you were going to go play soccer tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but basically you, you feel then that it's more or less a waste of time in, in a sense for your beach volleyball career. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's it's also it's also just nice to go and do something different. It's nice for the for the mind to do something else, and it's just something you know. I think uh, when you're uh, pursuing a career in something, let's call it that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then a lot of times you make sacrifices, and uh, you know I think I mentioned that before we started recording that you know I love playing other sports. I love playing badminton. I love playing paddle. I love playing soccer, basketball. And you know, these are the things that you now give up because every time you put basically pressure on your body or like when you train or when you get, you know, exhausted, yes. you use it to, to take you a little bit further in your sport. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't think those sports necessarily take me further. You know, it's fun for me to challenge someone in badminton, but it doesn't really help my beach volleyball career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah makes sense. Yeah, I always try to come up with activities that don't strain the same muscles in a sense. Yeah. Like if, if, for example, if my shoulder is tired from volleyball like I mm. uh, I think it's good because I also have this this aspect that I just want to move like every day like it's mm -hmm. just my life is just better I'm just a happier person if I get to do something physical every yeah. day and I can't every day necessarily do beach volleyball um, yeah but it's also like recovery is very important and then like also if you probably go and do other activities I don't know you maybe you know you played beach volleyball yesterday or two days ago mm -hmm. and then you know the next day you go and run it's still you know your legs are still feeling it exactly so exactly uh it's still it takes away from the time you could have used for for beach volleyball it does it so, does so essentially you know you if you want to if you want to get the best beach volleyball player you're essentially probably not doing it the biggest favor yeah yeah but i mean for the you know, for the holistic approach to life, it's very good. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's such a such a balance there. Mm -hmm. uh, but like one thing, as long as I don't have shoulder problems from beach volleyball, I, I sometimes do disc golf because it's a very chill sport. I don't need to run. I don't need to jump. I don't mm -hmm. need to. Like yes, you can get shoulder problems from 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 it because it's also explosive for the shoulder, mm -hmm. and. Uh, it is explosive in the full body in a sense, but it's not like you don't get sweaty, you don't get tired uh, and stuff like that. So, Well, there's also the first question for me that arises with this. Is that a sport or is that an activity? <laughs> so, you know, it probably depends who you ask. Yeah. For me, I always define it sort of like, and although I'm not the biggest fan of the whole Olympic movement anymore, but it's, uh, you know, if you talk about higher, what was it, higher faster, higher, stronger, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this all applies to the, to that sport, you know, so. No, that's true. So that, that makes it for me a little bit more of an activity. You know, if somebody is very much decreasing their physical ability, but can still perform at a peak, then yeah. it's probably not a, not a real sport for me. Okay, so you But don't. it could be a very difficult, challenging activity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me, like I have mm -hmm. huge respect, for example, for golfers. Yeah, but for me personally, it's not a real sport. But it's a very demanding activity where I cannot compete with the golfers, and I have giant respect for their skill. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't define it as a sport because it doesn't incorporate those aspects of you know, like you actually have to perform sort of 
physical as well. And then I know people come up with like, yeah, but Tiger Woods and he's like, you know, like training in the gym. He's yeah. But then like, there's also somebody who's like 50, 60 and fat, sorry to say it like that. <laughs> and he can still compete at, you know, be, be challenging that Tiger Woods guy. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, you know, you do, you do an activity, but I don't know if it's a sport. Yeah, and, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. I, I guess some this golfer out there is probably going to be pissed at you for saying that but yeah but i mean i'm i'm not trying to take anything away from their uh, skill i think it's no. a very impressive skill and it's demanding and also with them like recognizing the situation and seeing the path and like you know taking one that curves left and curves right whatever they do yeah. it's impressive but i still think when we talk about sports it has to have that physical component that you know you sort of gain a little bit of an advantage with your or if if you're not able to do certain things physically then you know you shouldn't be competitive mm -hmm. yeah and uh, that's what makes separates at least for me personally what is in sort of like an activity fun activity and what is a sport yeah makes sense so that means that chess is also not a sport <laughs> no but it's a you know i love chess and great respect to what they do and how they train and what combinations they're able to do and what they foresee but it's yeah know. yeah yeah no the, the the parts where i i think that maybe some of these activities could at times be even more intense than beach volleyball is the mental aspect like yeah. competitiveness staying focused not getting distracted uh, when stuff is on the line uh, and stuff like that so yeah but it's it's yeah it's not in the physical sense it's it's not the same mm -hmm. but also like then we can talk about you know and I think this is this goes for beach volleyball tennis uh, then any kind of golf and stuff you know how long do you really have to be focused you have to be focused for you know those in golf what is it you know they pay, play a par four for example so it's what for four shots Mm -hmm. And in between, you can do whatever you want. Your mind can wander off wherever you want to, but you yeah. have to just be able to regain that focus right before you hit that second shot, which is could be like what five minutes later. Mm -hmm. So you know how much how yeah. much more mentally demanding is it really uh, than another sport? Is just about how long of a breaks you take in between those. And technically, in beach volleyball, you know you can you can be focused and then take a little bit of a off in between the points for. 15, 20, 30 seconds, mm -hmm. and then you have to refocus again. So I think we're just now, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point because I think some, some people would argue that the opposite, that you have momentum in beach volleyball because you stay focused all the time and, and in golf you have to take these breaks. So it's, it's a little bit like when you take, a, when someone has a serve streak and you take a timeout to get them like, to not be able to continue on their momentum in a sense. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that's why, for example, like whenever we, and maybe, I don't know, but this is now a question a little bit more for psych guys, and I only worked with sports psychologists, but we always try to find sort of like um, key phrases, trigger points, sort mm -hmm. of in a sense, uh, that put you back into... Into the right, yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, like for example, when you're passing, you probably have, or when you're serving, you're probably focusing on one big thing, that was sort of your focus in training mm -hmm. or that was your focus in, in playing or maybe it was something that was hindering you to perform a good serve or a good pass. And then you have this one key phrase that reminds you, you know, like, I don't know, um, you have to do this with the arm, you have to look there, something, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you just try to remind yourself before you do that skill. Yeah. So you try to get yourself as much in this stage um, as you can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, that does, technically it doesn't matter then 
if somebody took a timeout, if you can get yourself back into that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So for me, it was also, and that's, I'm maybe a little bit different here, but for me, I didn't care if people took a timeout. Okay. Uh, and, <laughs> and then it's just, I think it's also a little bit of a perspective because some people value the point after a timeout like higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be an interesting statistic that I've never done. But for example, some people gave me praise because I was kind of a, like that was my college times. I would be the guy who, would, who had sort of a green light and I could surf. I could just go for my surf all the time. Mm-hmm. And there was quite a, not like often, but it happened a few times that, you know, you got a, you got an ace on like a set ball or after a timeout. But then it also happened that you missed. So there were certain people giving you praise like, oh, you're such a good server after a timeout or like when it comes to crunch time and other who were giving you like sort of you're such a bad server. So it would be interesting to see the statistics, but I think it's just like some people tend to focus on this one area more than the other. You know, some people are just like, oh, he made an error after a timeout. Like he completely played into their cards and the other ones were just like, oh, he served an ace. Uh So I don't know which one happened more often, but... Yeah, this is this is the interesting part where where like bias becomes like depending mm-hmm. on what you focus on, that's what you end up seeing. Yeah, and that's that's right. That's when we would actually need statistics to be able to say what yeah what has happened. But at the end of the day, it's it's only one point, right? So why yeah, does it, it really matter now? Mm-hmm. It's like what do you believe? At the end of the day, I wanted to get my twenty five points or now twenty one in in beach volleyball, right? Mm-hmm. So does it really matter if I make, you know? If, if I make an, if at the end of the day I made two errors in the set, does it really matter that much what moment I was at? Yeah, yeah, that's maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I guess we got got our intro done. <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, yeah. was, I, I, I just clicked the record button and I was like starting to think about w- what I was going to do for an intro, but uh, but I think we already started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, let's welcome you to the podcast anyway. Mm. Uh, so first things first um, name Nate or Nates 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 okay yeah. <laughs> a, good, a good old Slavic name that has a weird spelling and is a and is a torture to pronounce internationally <laughs> yeah that's me so but anything goes like living in the in the states living in France living in Sweden and you know like different languages and seeing my name uh written with n-e-j-c it's just uh, i think i've heard all kinds of different pronunciations already so i don't think i, I don't get offended with it or anything like that so no that makes sense, that makes sense. <laughs> so i don't know how many of the listeners will will know you from before and how many will not uh, i know myself i have some ideas just because well, you have some history here in Sweden, mm-hmm. and now just the other day you showed up here yeah. <laughs> uh, because we, we know some common people. But also, this interview is one of my least prepared ones because we just decided this, this morning that we're going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's go over your, your background just a little bit. You talk about the States, mm-hmm. some Hawaii stuff. You also had this uh, interesting statistic you talked about the other day. <laughs> Well, um, or record a record or whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not even sure which one you mean right now, but uh, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, <laughs> but you talked uh, you we were talking about the volleyball background now. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, so basically, I started playing indoor volleyball when I was uh, 12, around there, maybe a year earlier or later. I'm not really sure. It started all as sort of like extracurricular activity in school. You know, when you're trying all kinds of different sports. Then I joined the club team, and uh, yeah, I basically during the year or the school year we played indoor volleyball during the summer we were on the on playing beach volleyball 
And then at, when I was finished my high school, I got a scholarship offer to, to play in University of Hawaii. And okay. then I spent five years playing their college ball, um, which was a great experience. My first year I redshirted, which meant I only trained with the team. And then I still got my four years to compete. It was one of the best times. And I think, uh, yeah, I could talk about that forever as well. <laughs> okay. um, and then afterwards, I still played for a couple more years indoor professionally while always uh, combining it with beach volleyball over the summer. And actually, when I was done in Hawaii in 2011, uh, I sort of, that was my first uh, touchdown in Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, Björn Berry was then uh, sort of looking for a partner on the Swedish, uh, for the Swedish beach tour. Mm -hmm. And we worked with, uh, Slovenia has had during the past summers a coach from uh, from Umeå, which was Isak Hermansson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I trained with Isak quite a lot, and he, he put me in contact with Björn, and we had a couple of only Skype conversations, and then we decided to play together for, for a summer. Okay. Björn had some, obviously, some sponsors. The Swedish Beach Tour was then uh, eight tournaments with even some uh, uh, bonus prize, bonus pool at the end. Mm -hmm. So it was actually sort of also, let's say, worth it, even in a financial sense. Okay. Um, so I spent uh, three months in 2011 and then we actually did another year in 2012 where I may had my base here in Umeå. Okay. And we traveled around in Sweden, uh, around Sweden, yeah, for, uh, for the three months and played the tournament. So it was, I played uh, mainly the Swedish beach tour, but also a couple of challengers in between. Okay. And yeah, it was a great time. And then uh, I was still, like I said, then during the year I would still go and play on some indoor clubs. Uh, and then I think about five, six, seven years ago, I completely put indoor on the side and uh, I only folk, I only play beach now. So uh, that's okay. sort of my background. And, you know, because beach doesn't necessarily pay that well. And there's also, I work part time for a middle European volleyball association. Uh, so sort of the same as NEFTA, but for, for middle Europe. Okay. And I do part time. I used to sort of run the office there. Now I do more media stuff for them. Okay. I do beach camps on the side, um, so you know because, like I said, beach volleyball you can sort of live off of it if you're in the top maybe twenty, and also depending on what your federation has of a um, funding program. Yeah. But yeah, for me it's like I know I want to play, and then I adjusted my my life to a little bit where okay, I'm I need to earn some money. So what are the what are the jobs I can take to then be able to to, to combine? Train, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Before it was, let's say, indoor volleyball and my, my beach partners, the one we play sort of on the world tour with, he still plays indoor. And then in the summer when he's done, before he starts his next season and he has like sort of a, this window. Mm -hmm. And then we just compete uh, on, the, on the world tour, whatever tournaments come up. Okay, along. so he makes his money from indoor. Yeah, exactly. And, and you sort of combine. Yeah, because Bjorn said to me the other day that you have this uh, this uh, beach volleyball nomad yeah. <laughs> kind of life. Like I don't know, because uh, uh, you've been coaching here once, and like it seems like you just go from place to place. And yeah, so if if you just observe from the side, it becomes pretty messy and unorganized, and you're like, what the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> but uh, with a little bit of a background info, it makes some more sense because basically, so I'm from Slovenia. Mm -hmm. And for me in winter, it's just not a great spot for training. Uh, a few years ago, there was the first indoor facility that opened. So now there's basically a spot where you could train in Slovenia, but it still doesn't have the proper structure around it. So, you know, you could now possibly find a coach, you could possibly find some guys to train with, but you know, it's, 
it's a little bit of a struggle and it would also be financially quite demanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just not worth it staying there. Yeah. So it's easier for me to kind of join other um, either clubs or teams or setups that are already existing mm-hmm. and just join them as a training partner. And, you know, luckily I've been in a position where, you know, people thought that it maybe adds a little bit of a value or whatever that yeah, I joined yeah. them. So. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to go and train, I don't know, in Australia, train in Germany, train in Spain, uh, train in Sweden, Norway, you know, wherever it is that you can join somebody who's already training. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's that, been... Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So so people are welcoming and, and there's always, uh, it's always interesting to have people from different places. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's also been uh, not just for training. It's also like you're at different places. Mm-hmm. So you also see what the structures there are, how, how it functions, what the setups are. So you're also taking valuable lessons from it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, that's just traveling in general. Like I, I love being in different places because you always learn something. The, the things you least that you would least expect to, to learn, yeah. uh, you end up learning. <laughs> yeah, and then you also see, uh, you know, everybody has a little bit. So for example, I'm just going to throw this out, but I think Sweden is when it comes to beach volleyball, it's actually in, at least in one area, it's one of the more developed ones. Um, and that is sort of, most other countries do not have as many beach volleyball clubs. Most of the other countries do not have basically the opportunity to play beach volleyball 12 months of the year, mm-hmm. because there's not maybe so many indoor facilities. Yeah. But on the other hand, Sweden is, has this sort of, uh, uh, it's, this has developed on a little bit more of a leisure level. It's not necessarily on a developing uh, talent, talent, high, high talent performance. Yeah. Uh, so you have a lot of recreational players, but you don't maybe necessarily have that many players striving for, you know, necessarily the Olympics or stuff like that. Yeah. So in one sense, Sweden has, you know, removed the hurdles or like the for ent- barriers to entry. Because you can, you know, you're up here in Umea, you can go to play in Iksu. Maybe it's not always organized training, but it's more so than in other countries a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have such a love-hate relationship with this place. I mean, this is partly my hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably because of the beach volleyball indoor facility here and everything is probably why I started playing in the first place because mm-hmm. it existed in the city and I just happened to be from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I agree, like it's, this, is, this might be one of the cheapest indoor facilities in the fucking world. Yeah. Uh, right now it's, it's 60 euros a month and you play as much as you want. Yeah. Uh, like that's unheard of. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, because of the structure of the place, which is that it's not necessarily for profit. It's, it's kind of mm-hmm. a, I don't know what, what they're called in English, but it's like, kind of a non-profit organization yeah. type of thing. So it just, when they make money, the, the place grows. So yeah. last year they, or two years ago, they built this huge uh, climbing facility because yeah. they just had a bunch of money and the place just keeps growing. I think it's the biggest yeah, sports center in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that when I got here, it was advertised as like the biggest sports center in Northern Europe. Okay. Um, I don't know now how it refers to the rest of Europe, but yeah. also just mention like, you mentioned the price now, 60 euros, and you can play as much as you want. So, for example, <laughs> for me in Slovenia, that's two hours. Yeah. Because you have to pay per hour. And then maybe if you go like a little bit in the, in the downtime, yeah. so sort of early in the day, or then maybe you can get 
four or five hours out of it. If you go, for example, to Munich, this is one hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it all depends. Uh, yeah. But yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's 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 ridiculous in some ways. Then then on the other hand, you're you're stuck in like northern Sweden. It's you, okay. Today we have the sun out, but but you barely see the sun for for many months out of the year, and and it's freezing cold and and whatnot. And and then there's also the the other aspect of it being so cheap, which is it's cheap because of uh, basically Sweden is sort of kind of left in politically, uh, which makes makes certain things like easily accessible but as you say i think it, that also has to do with that it's not easy to go for to try to become a lot better than a lot of other people here it, mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of the whole culture is sort of against that <laughs> yeah 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 i think so a little bit i think what sweden values is very much this that people are equal yeah. And when it comes to sports as well, uh, like what Sweden values high is that the healthy lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure this is not something where I want to make a statement. I don't know if it's uh, <laughs> if it's now if you go into uh, sort of this elite level of sports, if this is unhealthy or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can definitely feel that a lot of people are willing to spend money for like something that makes them feel better, something that they move. Um, but this is maybe then, you know, like one, tw- once, twice a week, maybe they do like different activities every day, but it's not something where they train, you know, uh, twice a day or, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, these are complicated questions and, and, and can yeah. become heated also. So let's not go into them, but no, but, but for me, it was also great to be in Sweden because I think this, I'm going to call this the Western model where, you know, people pay, um, I still think it's a little bit Western because it's a lot for like people who are working and they pay for every time they visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for example, I come from Slovenia, which on the other sense, it's like uh, if you're not com- if you're not in that talent pool, then a lot of times you don't have the opportunity. And one of these examples is like indoor volleyball. So, for example, everybody starts playing indoor volleyball at a certainly certain young age. Mm-hmm. And then if you're not in this like sort of like a high talent or if you're not useful for the team, other times you get not not kicked out, but you get sort of pushed to the side. And sooner or later, you don't even have the opportunity to exercise the sport anymore. Okay. So everything is catered towards this, like we're going to be in the sort of like the Allsvenskan or the Elite Serien or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're not there, then a lot of times you don't have this opportunity. There's not many teams that are just there for, you know, like anybody can join and anybody can get training. But also in a business model, if you can combine the two, that's sort of the ideal business model yeah. for any kind of sport. And I'm seeing now this, for example, in Sweden, you focus on this like, yeah, okay, whoever can pay can join, but we don't care how good they, they get. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you have like Slovenia or maybe like more south of the Europe, wherever you go, uh, where, uh, you know, they're focusing only on this talent uh, uh, talent pool side of it. Exactly, and and if you go too hard on on one side and ignore the other, then because one could probably argue that it, you know, having top players is also good marketing for the sport, which will make uh, people play. Like, so so comp- this, uh, you know, politically, uh, before the pandemic, I I coached in Norway because. Mm-hmm. For me, it was easier to actually make a living out of it there because here it's here it's a little bit more of like oh, everyone should coach 
equal amount type of thing. Like, mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're in a sense not allowed to be better than anyone else. Yeah. It should be equal. So, mm -hmm. so it became hard to make a living here from, from coaching because mm -hmm. I just wouldn't get enough hours. Like, or I can always do my own marketing, but, but mm -hmm. that also takes, takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. which I'm doing with the project and everything. But, yeah. uh, but in a sense, they have, and now with Mo and Sorum, like they have such an explosion there because they also have a lot of recreational players, mm -hmm. but they also have the top players, which just markets the sport. And it's, mm -hmm. it's this perfect combination. Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, they just have lack of courts and, and coaches in general in that country. Because yeah. uh, <laughs> everyone wants to play the type of thing. Yeah, they definitely got a lot of publicity now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we should definitely see quite a lot of beach volleyball players in Norway, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but that's also a little bit of this uh, mentality um, thing, and uh, this was a sort of an example. I'm, there's people who approach coaches and say, you know, we pay this and this much, but then it's also you're not looking for that specific person, you're just looking for a coach in general. You know, for example, I want to drive a Ferrari too, but if I can only pay for, you know, a, a, a small Fiat, then obviously I'm not going to drive a Ferrari, and it's the same thing with, with anything in life, you get what you pay for. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if we're not willing to sometimes invest a little bit more, then obviously we're not going to get the best talent. And yeah, exactly, because you you can just hire a coach. Because there's no you can anyone can be a coach and anyone can start some drills and and then that's it. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what does it produce? That's that's the question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the 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 record thing I was going to talk about, which was uh, you, you said because uh, we talked about Bjorn. He, he talked about he maybe wanted to try to win a Swedish uh, championship uh -huh. after fifty next year. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you said you also think you have a record. It was the most natural, different national tour wins. Yeah, but this, yeah, this came like, there's just somehow like FIVB and whoever else, they're like trying to sort of catch up, I guess, with the rest of the, or with other sports. And they're coming up with statistics, who has played the most tournament and stuff like that. And then it was in one conversation came up that we started counting how many different national tours we've played and uh, actually won. And I think right now it's nine national tours for me. Um, so it's been, you know, having this beach nomad life. You just play in a lot of different tournaments. And it's been with different partners as well, obviously. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's been uh, other countries that I've, that I've played and even some state tours and stuff like that. But this is just, it's part of that training in the winter where I'm not playing in the... Um, indoor or I'm not not able to play on the world tour because my partner's playing indoor mm -hmm. uh, and it's just yeah you just go around and you can play different national tours so that's that's nice yeah. but yeah it would be interesting to know because I mean most of the top players they don't play that many national tours so they obviously haven't won so many different ones exactly uh, so I'm sort of in this uh, in-between level where probably or maybe I even do I have this worldwide record who knows <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be cool <laughs> so wait Slovenia is there other players than you and your partner? I mean, there's always uh, players that are coming up, but there's nobody who's really doing it full time. So, so you guys are the official national team or? Yeah. And that's also, I think that's also quite of a interesting uh, debate always in beach volleyball. Like what is a national team? <laughs> that's true. You know, so as soon as you apply for one of those uh, world tour events, you're basically representing your country. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to get signed up through your federation. And at the end of the day, you can only play with somebody from the same country because it counts for the Olympic points. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as it counts for the Olympic points or the world ranking, it has to be it has to be the same country because yeah, that's how it runs. Yeah. Um, so technically, as soon as you sign up for a for a world tour or even a European tour, you're basically representing your country, and in a, in a sense, you are the national team. Mm-hmm. So now there's a little bit of you know people look at v- things differently. Uh, and now we have this Continental Cup uh, competition as well, which is sort of just uh, for the Olympic qualifier, you get uh, 15 teams that get through the world ranking and then there's the world championships and the host or whatever. Um, but there's also this extra spots that get given to each continent. Each continent gets one additional spot. Mm-hmm. And this is the Continental Cup. It's sort of like a Davis Cup format, two teams from the same country play against two teams from the other country. Uh, and you sort of earn that additional spot, but it's just an additional spot. But some federations who are less active, let's call it this way, they call this now the, you know, the national team competition because it's sort of like two beach volleyball mm-hmm. teams against two beach volleyball teams. But in a sense, the actual n- national team has always been the world tour. You know, it's Brazil against USA, it's or who, whatever other country yeah. is there. Um, so, yeah. But Slovenia has a lot of indoor Yes, we have a very players. strong yeah and, and good players. Yeah, especially now we had uh, so. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I think uh, I am from this generation that sort of started the indoor push, but not because of me. But we have this one uh, uh, player who is uh, just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tine Urnaut, he's been we were we were on the junior national team, youth junior national team together, and he's been always one of the world's best. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes from a, from a big volleyball family. His uh, brothers, father, mom, they all played volleyball and they were all in the Europe's top. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of like the driving force of our generation. And uh, he's now been the past 10, 15 years, he's been the captain of our national team. And basically in the last three out of the four European championships, uh, Slovenia has finished second uh, in indoor volleyball. And, you know, in all four of the last Euros, they beat Poland, for example, and knocked Poland out of the competition, which is a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. And I think in three of them, they beat Russia. Uh, in two of them, I think they beat Italy. Italy. Okay. So, you know, they're obviously there. And if you played three out of the last four finals, you're obviously a, a volleyball powerhouse. Yeah. They basically missed the Olympics by uh, two matches. They lost in the semifinal against France to qualify mm-hmm. for the Olympics. And France ended up winning the qualifier, ended up winning the Olympics as well. Yeah. So and they lost in five sets. So it was, you know, a very close match, obviously. Uh-huh. So they are a powerhouse now. The men's national team in Slovenia, they are an absolute force. Okay. So there's also n- not really to be expected that players are young players are gonna decide to go and play beach volleyball that has absolutely no structure. I see, I see. Yeah. Yeah, While yeah. on the other side you have indoor that is, you know. It's very attractive to stay on the indoor side. Yes, once you have. I mean, and also now because of the successes of the national team, obviously the value of the players is going up as well. Mm-hmm. So also the financial incentives to play uh, indoor volleyball are also becoming bigger and bigger. And I just put it like this, the value of Slovenian players is going up because of those successes. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they obviously earned it, but yeah. 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 So, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, so your prediction is not a lot of other Slovenian players coming up mm, well, Be- I th- in, on the beach volleyball side. I think m- my prediction for the world is that in the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see a slow but consistent development in, uh, in the quantity uh, of beach volleyball players. I think beach volleyball is very attractive. 
but I think worldwide it's, it's missing structure. So although we're going to see maybe a dip in the, in the top level, mm-hmm. uh, just because we don't have sustainable business models yet, mm-hmm. uh, I see that more and more it's attractive for a lot of players. Yeah. Um, and one of this is sort of the easiness of the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, friendly, attractive. I call it a, I call it an entry level lifestyle sport. So, most other lifestyle sports, for example, what are lifestyle sports for you? Anything from surfing, surfing yeah, snowboarding, yeah, um, like freestyle you know, skiing or whatever. Yeah. But all of them require either a lot of equipment or a special place. Mm-hmm. And beach volleyball gives you that sort of that same feeling, the same hype. Mm-hmm. But you can have a beach volleyball court anywhere. You don't have to go to a, to a world-renowned beach. You don't have to wait for special conditions. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to a special mountain, but you can do it. So basically, yeah. Umea has, what is it called, Slutskugan or, or what? No, what is uh, it? Skugis. Skugis, yeah, exactly. Yeah, outside so, of Ixuga. Yeah, so yeah, it's just like, course. you know, somebody built three courts. And, you know, on a sunny day, you go there in your uh, sort of shorts and you feel like you're somewhere at the beach. Although the surroundings is not always perfect, but... Mm-hmm. You know, it gives you that sort of, it's like this entry-level lifestyle sport. So a lot of people want to do it. A lot of people enjoy it. So a lot of people, you know, tend to try it. Uh, so I think it's very attractive and more and more people are, you know, able to do it. And the problem, what has been holding on, there is there's some barriers to entry because if you want to play it, you have to find friends, you have to find coaches, you have to find equipment, which is not much, but you still have to find it. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of kids doing it. So as soon as we're going to get more clubs, in a sense, or organizations mm-hmm. offering it, it's going to be easier for more people to try it and more people are going to get hooked because it's an easy sport to get hooked. Yeah, yeah it is. And I think also for the spectators, as soon as they get to know it a bit better, they enjoy it, they love it. Yeah. But I mean, I, honestly, I don't want to watch uh, one camera stream from the, from the world tour because it's boring. Yeah, yeah. And if I don't know much about the sport, I don't know what's going on. I'm just watching mm-hmm. for, you know for statues moving and I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So obviously the beach volleyball world needs to improve what they're sending to the world and, you know, has to lower the barriers to entry. But I think that's going to be happening now in the next 10 years. And we're seeing different stuff of it happening yeah. already. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that want to make things better. So yeah. I think sooner or later it will it will happen. Mm. Uh, that's true. And yeah, beach volleyball is really fun to watch. Like it's very athletic, and if you know a little bit about it, uh, or if you have a good commentator that explains a little bit about it, uh, then it becomes, I think, fun for pretty much anyone to watch. Yeah, and I don't know how much of that you've seen, but for example, in Germany now you've had uh, Alex Valkenhorst. So yeah, they had this Corona tour type of thing. Yeah, so basically it was they had a it was always a league format. So he got a bunch of teams together. If it was, I think it was always eight, but doesn't matter. So you get a, he got a bunch of teams, and instead of playing a tournament, they did a set schedule of like everybody playing against everybody twice, and then they played a playoff, which for him was easier because he could make a fixed schedule from the beginning to the end. It wasn't depending on if you're winning or losing, except for that very end part of it. Um, that was one benefit. Um, and the other benefit was like he had the teams there, but what he changed and what was the biggest thing was that they didn't necessarily, f- they had multiple cameras and it was a broadcast thing. It maybe wasn't TV quality, but they put two guys, two commentators next to it that were explaining the game to mm-hmm. a very, very high in deep, in depth level. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what sort of changed the game there. 
because now, for example, if my mom was watching, she knew what was going on. She could almost feel like a coach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important if you want to attract people. Um, so, you know, if I always give this example that I went to a baseball game and I thought it was the most boring sport ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next time I went with the dad of a, one of my teammates who was sort of like a major league scout. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining me all of the insights and, you know, I found it fascinating yeah. because it was so much new knowledge and, you know, all of a sudden, like, I was like, yeah, but why are they doing this? This is not, you know, he should do this. Um, and then I was excited. You get exci- involved. Yeah, you get involved, you get excited about it because yeah. you know what's going on. You feel like an expert, although I still don't know anything about baseball. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same thing for beach volleyball. You know, if you have two experts explaining you the game and the good part about them was that it was on Twitch so people could ask questions and if there was like a for example a good question they would answer it and stuff like that so you know you as a spectator in front of the screen you felt like you know the game Mm -hmm. and then of course it becomes interesting you know the players you know the game you're like yeah "Yeah." but if i'm just watching four people move around and i have no clue what they're doing i don't even understand the rules and it's not that interesting so i think they just showed the way that it's maybe not always about the the cameras and the quality of the cameras I mean, it has to be a certain level, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, of course. But it's more about this, you know, how much can I feel like I have all the info and I'm the, yeah, exactly. I'm the expert. So exactly. And I think in general, people like learning stuff. Like uh, I thought about this, you know, Formula One is apparently one of these sports that just somehow became like a big public sport. And and I'm I'm raised in Finland, and and Finland has one, had one of these. No, they had two or three. Mika Häkkinen, they had a few mm-hmm. like top uh, Formula One drivers. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with just watching this f- fucking car sport. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know anything about cars, but, mm-hmm. but somehow uh, for some reason, the, the, it was like the whole nation was like hypnotized by this sport. Like mm-hmm. everyone was always watching it. So, mm-hmm. so you end up watching it as a kid also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but you learn, like you learn like how they turn in turns, like how they how the mechanics do the pit stops and mm-hmm. shit like that. So it's like interesting because I just think it's interesting for people to learn stuff in, yeah. in general. But I also think that, you know, those sports, they made it to sort of a national TV or they were like easily accessible to mm-hmm. you. And I think the level of knowledge of the general population watching it was sort of determined by the commentators. So I still feel that, for example, a lot of people watch, for example, football, soccer, Mm-hmm. But if you, if we would really check the knowledge of the people, how much they know the game tactically and technically, it would be very low because most of the commentators that commentate uh, soccer are just journalists. Uh-huh. I, and I don't want to be mean, but it's like, I don't think like they never talk about, you know, okay, they're, they're now playing 4-3-3. What are the sort of the chains there that the players are using? Well, what switch happened? Who was responsible for that ball? Who actually made the error? Yeah. It's not really in-depth. No. Um, but sort of now the general population is at that level. And we all talk on this very general level about the sport. Oh, yeah, he sucks. Oh, yeah, he's great. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> but uh, I think it's, it becomes way more fun. And I, I'm... A couple of times now I went, uh, I mean, I watched a soccer game now. Uh, it happens once or twice a year for me, not more. But you can see that now with technology and, you know, the studios, they're actually doing a lot more than they did 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, okay, now they're actually highlighting, yeah, this player did this, so this switch happened. 
you know, and you're actually starting to get to know the, a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. And I like that. That's cool. Yeah. But uh, I still think that it's a little bit determined from the commentators because they're sort of bringing the game to us. Yeah. And way too often the sport has the problem that, you know, it's not a high, yeah, it's not in depth, it's not high level. Yeah. yeah. Um, that makes sense. Uh, there's uh, even more I would want to jump into in, in this, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, okay, I'll I'll take one thing. Uh, I went to this um, seminar about making YouTube videos that would stick with people uh, mm-hmm. because I make YouTube videos, and one of the core concepts of it was uh, take something that is familiar to people and combine it with something that they don't know. So, for example. Uh, uh, you're drinking coffee. Like a lot of people know what coffee is, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe not a lot of people know. Uh, this is just a stupid example. Uh, drink coffee so that it becomes uh, dangerous for you. Okay. So, so if you if you have a video title that's like 10, 10 ways to drink coffee that becomes dangerous for you, then mm-hmm. it's like people know what it's about. It's not about this random topic that they have no idea about, yeah. but it also creates curiosity. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm wondering if, for example, the Formula One, like a lot of people can drive cars, but they don't know how to drive cars fast or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it's, maybe the commentators should also think about this, like how much does the general public know? So we need to give them something that's, that they can recognize, but then we also mm-hmm. need to give them something new. <laughs> yeah, I think I would enjoy a lot if, for example, now with Formula One, the commentators would also tell more about, you know, the, the technical stuff when they're driving, mm-hmm. you know, because just there, most of the drivers are pretty much at the, at a very high level of it. So you yeah. don't really talk so much about, you know, um, I don't know, for example, when we went go-karting, they, you know, they had to tell us what side to lean on so yeah. that, you know, you get more weight on the, on the tire that you want. And, you know, like, they always talk about, you know, the, they're warming up the tires, but I never got like an in-depth explanation of like when the tires are warm, when the tires are cold, what, you know, that kind of a stuff. So I'm, I'm very general, like I know the terms, but I don't know anything really about it. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, it's just like we're sort of like scraping this tip of the iceberg, you know, we have mm-hmm. those terms out there and we feel like we know something, yep. but we're all there. Not many of us know much more. Exactly. There's, of course, there's a few people who love cars and they know more about it. Yeah. There's a few people that are probably mechanics and they know a lot more about it. Mm-hmm. But in general, when we're, I think we're, and this is just my observation and it could be wrong, yeah. but I think we're generally pretty dumb when we're watching Formula One. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're also, in general, I think we're pretty dumb when we're watching soccer. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people who have trained soccer at one stage. I have played it as well. Uh, but still, I, I, I was a kid, I was, I was between six and nine, you don't train anything there. You know, I mean, you, yeah. the, the, the knowledge you have about the sport is non-existent, basically. Exactly. You're just standing there because the coach told you to stand there. You don't know why, you don't know what you're supposed to do. Uh, and now I'm watching soccer and I'm not supposed to be this expert. Uh, but yeah. I see that basically all of the biases I have about soccer have basically been formed about, around from, you know, other com- other you know, commentators, people that I've watched with, and hopefully at one point there's somebody who's an expert and explain me a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's go into 
uh, let's go into beach volleyball. <laughs> let's let's take the stuff that the listeners know something about, but then also add something new mm-hmm. to their minds. <laughs> okay, let's, let's be YouTube efficient. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you I, yeah, uh, you probably don't know it, but you have coached me a few years ago. Uh, you're the first coach that ever. Uh, ever while coaching me flicked out your phone recorded me doing something and okay. then came and asked me to come to the side and, and showed me the video really? in slow motion back and forth uh, I, I, I don't do this often so this uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly and I've completely stolen that technique yeah. like uh, it's it's I think it's the best video feedback way I've Find, found, found to do it, you know, especially when you can scroll back and forth on the phone mm-hmm. and you just show like straight after someone does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's so much more clear to, to see what you're doing wrong rather mm-hmm. than having the coach just try to explain that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, first, I'm happy that it was something that it was a positive impression that you got. Yeah. Because I was now afraid, <laughs> you like, nervous, you right? told me this and this and I'm like, oh, shit, you know. I, I hope, I, I'm pretty sure I've developed since then as well. So hopefully I didn't say something really stupid. Uh, but yeah, okay. So it's a good start. It's yeah. a good start, yeah. <laughs> no, do you have any, um, I mean, you, you seem to, I don't know you super well, but you seem to be a thinker. Like so far in this episode, we, we have heard that you have a lot of thoughts about things. Is, is, is there anything in beach volleyball that you're like, I wish more people would understand this or, you know, common mistakes that you think, common misunderstandings. Is there anything that you... Mm, no, I don't know. I don't know. I think it might, sh- like, we'll talk about it more and maybe there's be something really specific that will uh, turn up. But for me, it's like I've just kind of fell in love with the sport and I love doing it. Yeah. And then also, you know, I think it was, for me, it was a way to improve my game. Mm-hmm. And it was also, I was also sort of like on the same hunt as you are. Like, what is the most efficient way? How do I learn better? And, you know, uh, for the best coaches and stuff like that. So I was, I was probably, or still am, on the very similar path than you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to be wasting too much time. I want to. You know, I want to get better and uh, yeah, that's sort of the, the path that I'm on. But there are also, let's call it periods in that sense. So, you know, whenever somebody says, you know, you've coached me a while ago or we did a session together or you shared this opinion of yours, mm-hmm. it's always a little bit dangerous because I also think like, you know, now I know more yeah. than I did back then. So hopefully I didn't say back then something that is not something that I wouldn't do anymore. That you cannot stand for yeah. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But on the other hand, I also look at it back in a sense where, you know, uh, also when you're coaching, I wouldn't necessarily teach a pro, a national team player, exactly the same as I would teach a beginner. That's true. So I mm-hmm. think there's also stages and, uh, you know, Maybe it might be only my defense mechanism now trying to uh, uh, justify the way I coached like five or ten years ago. But it's also, I think you have to go through certain stages. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. I have this, this same problem. Like I, and I know, I, can, I know that I, as a player and a coach, I will evolve. I have evolved. I will change my mind about things. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so my YouTube videos are sometimes kind of a mental struggle because I, I want to create a video that, that I'm proud of today. Mm-hmm. But I also want to... Sometimes there's corners of it that I feel like 
this might be something that I might change my mind a little bit about in the next few years once I get more time looking into it. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of have to choose words that, that allow me to, <laughs> to change yeah. my mind one day. Yeah. Or I explain like this is maybe good for more beginner, intermediate, whatever. And, mm -hmm. and maybe other people need, should do something else. Yeah. Uh, just so I'm clear about that. So I'm not saying that this is the way and this is the only way and everyone should do it. Yeah, and I also think now that I look back at it, I don't think there was like so much, even if somebody was a little bit in a different philosophy. So, you know, there's always like different philosophies on like, you know, passing, should you be fronting? Should you take the ball in front of you? Should you take it lateral on the side? Mm -hmm. Or same thing with like setting. There's always like, you know, should you face? Is it okay to, you know, do a side set? So, is, yeah, it, yeah. Is, it, uh, is it, should it become more out of your legs? Should it come more out of your arms? There's always different schools of thoughts or whatever it is. Um, but I think, you know, as soon as like somebody has a lot of um, body awareness and the more you have trained to do something, it's also easier for you probably to change in a sense that you have more body control. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have programmed yourself into something that is different. So you might have been, I don't know, programming yourself to use a lot of your legs when you're setting. Mm -hmm. But and then at one point you want to change to more arms. Mm -hmm. uh, it's harder because you have automated something, but at the same time you have more body awareness. So it's also easier to change. So mm -hmm. it's always a little bit of a trade-off as well. Yeah. Um, so I don't think any of those necessarily set you back for, for, for a lot. Yeah, I agree, and 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 I'm more and more thinking that being being all round is good. So so I think there's there's times, for example, when it's good to face where you're setting, and then I think yeah. there's times when you cannot, like it's it's physically impossible. Yeah. So why not actually train both and like gain both skills, and and then it's more about like what what situation should you do what in? I mean, yeah, I think there's also, I mean, especially when we talk about coaching, I mean, there's gonna be always. Uh, people coming and just deciding that something is easier and might not even having like a scientific background. Uh, so obviously there's going to be a situation where you're going to just run after a ball that's going to be outside of the court and it's impossible to face. So mm -hmm. should we just let the ball drop or is there also something you can do to control that w ball better? So I think we just need to talk a little bit more about principles, not necessarily just like you always have to face when you're setting because it's not going to be impossible. So if I can only set the balls where I'm when I'm facing, then you know obviously I'm gonna, I might even half of the half of the balls that are being you know passed my way, I should better just catch and throw it to the opponent. So, and you know I've talked to coaches and they are good coaches and they tell you like you should always try to face. Yeah, you should try, but it's not gonna be possible. Yeah. What should I do when it's not possible? Yeah, you yeah. should still try. Okay, but I'm not gonna. Okay, I agree. I tried. I didn't make it. So what now? What can I do? Mm -hmm. Try. Okay, this is not the best coaching advice right now. Yeah. You know, but there's something about, you know, facing the platform towards the target or, you know, uh, tilting the, the upper body or whatever the, the, what do you want to call it? The handset to face the target. But, you know, there's stuff you can do and there's stuff that is biomechanically more efficient. Mm -hmm. You know, just like going for the easy, for the easy way out. It's like, yeah, you should try. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm trying hard, you know, in a sense, that's lazy coaching. Yeah. Or it's just like, you know, then it's also okay to say like, then I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But there's also, there's also people who are trying, you know, like they're running, they're probably 180 degrees away from the target. Mm -hmm. And then while they're making the contact, they try to make sometimes up to 180 degrees turn mm -hmm. while setting. 
And, you know, this is probably not going to be very accurate. No, no. Because at that point, you're trying to do a giant rotation while, and obviously your um, precision is going to be determined by where your either platform or where your extension goes to. Mm -hmm. So that's your precision, right? Yeah. And if you're making a 180 degree spin while you're doing that, it's probably not going to be very accurate. Mm -hmm. You're probably better just like facing 180 degrees away and setting it basically over yourself absolutely yeah um uh, you know so basically that you should try to face is a pretty shitty advice there uh, yeah yeah you're actually like f making somebody less accurate because you're trying to make them do something that is not efficient mm -hmm. yeah. so there are certain ways of being more efficient so yeah absolutely i i've done a lot of hours of setting into basketball hoops and, mm -hmm. and at one point uh, that experimentation became into can i do this backwards yeah. And, and after a while I realized that I can watch the lines on the floor that's in front of me when I'm facing with my back towards the hoop mm -hmm. and I can calculate because I know how the lines look like on the, on the floor. Yeah. I can calculate from what I see in front of me sort of where the basket is without seeing it. Uh, so, so I, I kind of created this concept of like blind 3D mapping, like yeah. from, from knowing the place you are in, from seeing what you have in front of you, mm -hmm. to trying to imagine, to also be able to visualize where things are behind you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's, and I've thought about it maybe a, a little bit more now in the recent days as well, because we had some interesting conversation along this. But we all, I don't know about you, but we've always defined volleyball as a motor visual sport. So visual part is that you see something. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the ball flying towards you or whatever. And then you apply a certain motor program for it. May it be the pass, may it be the set, may it be a spike, whatever it is. But it's always, in a rea uh, it's always reactive to what you see. Mm -hmm. And in training, we focus so much more on just the motor side of it. Yeah. And there's very little cues and very few coaches talk about the visual part. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you see? What do you take? And this was now maybe not a one for one example from you because this is a little bit more, okay, how do I, you know, but a lot of times I don't need to see exactly where I'm standing. I don't need to look down to see where I'm standing because I'm taking my surrounding. Yeah. And I know because the net is there. You know, I know where I need to set the ball or, you know, I know where I am in the in the space. Yeah. Yeah. And so and maybe this was a little bit a different topic. Also, like when you're in indoor volleyball, you come to different gyms. Right. Mm -hmm. So you take so sometimes, you know, people struggle with away games so much because you're used to your own gym and you know where the walls are, you know, the distances, you have this depth perception a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And then you come either to a smaller or a bigger gym. And you're so lost. It's so difficult for you because basically those markers are gone. Yeah. So basically you should take your orientation only on the net, antennas and the lines. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. So you think maybe thinking about the surroundings could actually hurt you in a sense. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I don't know how much you've done of this, but you come to like one of the biggest problems for most indoor volleyball players, I think, is the coming into like a giant, giant gym. Uh-huh. You know, you come into this giant stadium where like the ceiling is like, I don't know, sky high. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. can actually do a sky ball in it. Uh -huh. Oh, you're, you're so lost because <laughs> the ball goes up high and you're like looking through it and like it's so hard, right? Yeah. So it, it becomes a little bit of a thing. Yeah. That's why also like home court is, is important. Like yeah. a lot of times we don't even think about that, but, uh, you know, having what are your markers to know your position in space or like to... to 
to see the ball flying at you like what do you what do you take in account mm-hmm. and then also like when it comes to the next thing is like um you have an example here of Bjorn and I asked him that a couple of days ago like Bjorn what makes you such a great passer mm-hmm. and you know what are you doing different than other people and you know it's hard to point out something in the te- technical part but and he, his answer was as well is like you know I just think I read the ball better probably than most people. Yeah, and it's probably the thing, you know. If you would go and now analyze and you can like slow-mo his passing form and whatever, what makes it so much better? It would be hard to pinpoint something, mm-hmm. but he just makes better decisions mm-hmm. because, you know, he estimates the flight curve probably a bit sooner, a bit better. So that's what makes him at the end a better passer. Mm-hmm. So it's also about this visual part. And so now we tackled two different visual parts. One is like, knowing where you stand and the other one is actually reading the yeah. reading the ball yeah um, but i think the visual part is very very important Absolutely. And, and you know the top players are obviously going to do it better and one thing it comes from having a lot more repetitions uh but the other part is now also that they know what they do and a lot of times it's also like in their subconscious just because they've done it so many times they don't even know what they're doing differently they just see the ball flying and they already know it's going to be here Mm-hmm. while you know a beginner is like sees the ball flying and he runs towards the ball most of the time and then he crashes or like hits him into the head the chest whatever but you know yeah, yeah. and it's not that the person is and they can might have the same order program they might both have a pretty good platform ready yeah but they yeah. they position it differently absolutely yeah the the it was fun that that indoor volleyball like different halls and, and people mm-hmm. i think the beach volleyball equivalent to that is uh, when you play at midday on a court that has no trees and nothing surrounding it so it's the sun is just blasting from straight up so there's no shadows there's no there's nothing pointing south north mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I've had that feeling that now I'm completely lost because mm-hmm. I have no idea what I'm doing yeah. it's it's much easier if the if the sun is coming from an angle there's some trees that create some shade that creates you know just the surrounding Uh, and also here when we play indoor like the indoor beach volleyball Mm -hmm. uh, you also always have stuff around you so it's just way easier to to know where you are for me i guess it's really trippy for me uh, when you set up a court on the beach and it's not aligned with basically the buildings in the background uh-huh. <laughs> but not that it's like 90 degrees to it, but it's just a little bit crooked. Okay. Because then sort of like the buildings in the background, they give you a little bit of a perception of what is straight. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> and for me, this is like, then I always like this sideline is, is terrible for me. Yeah. Um, so this is something that you just kind of take in account and I don't know, but yeah. That's interesting. But for most of the other ones, like the one that you mentioned, like with the sun and that one don't bug me so much. But for me, it's like this one. We had it a couple of times where we set up like really on the beach, you set up a court mm-hmm. and it could be that it wasn't perfectly aligned. You know, you just like it should be like this, but it was a couple of a degrees maybe off. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> that made it difficult. <laughs> yeah. Because you can basically whenever I'm looking to the other side, I am automatically take those buildings also into account yeah and then if it's maybe the lines were just a little bit crooked i'm not saying maybe it wasn't a regulation court but oh Mm -hmm. i struggled with that one so much yeah Yeah. that's interesting uh i I had this uh i'm thinking i'm gonna make a youtube video of it one day i haven't yet uh but it's like called the what the fuck 
uh, checklist. It's like when, when things just don't work the way they used to do, like mm -hmm. a, a checklist of things that could be wrong. Mm -hmm. This sounds like a perfect uh, candidate for, for that checklist. Like, yeah, <laughs> is yeah. this court just fucked up compared to the surroundings? Yeah. But, but one of the things on that checklist would be also to, is the court actually flat? Like, or sometimes one side of the court is higher than the other, <laughs> which, <laughs> especially on a beach, yeah. uh, which you don't necessarily always think yeah. about it. Yeah. Like you're there and yeah. you, you just, you know, you get stupid and then you get angry because things don't work mm. and then you get even stupider. Mm. So then you also get a more and more difficult time realizing this yeah. because it makes basically the court becomes longer on one side and shorter on the other. So it's, yeah. <laughs> you have to serve way differently depending yeah. on where you're serving from. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> but I guess I don't know how it, that's uh, for me at least but I mean obviously we've played uh, immense amounts of beach volleyball mm -hmm. but then it's sort of like already your intuition tells you like something is wrong yeah yeah um, and then you sort of like realize and again we set up on the beach and then I was like oh I'm almost like I'm almost like running uphill when I'm uh, uh, serving from one end and it really was like that that court was just like it was just outside of the court and it was a little bit like, you know, then you had to go and it felt like it was so much tougher to serve from that side. So then I always went like a little bit to the side where it wasn't. <laughs> and a similar feeling that I had was uh, at the beginning, I never played with sunglasses. Uh -huh. um, and the reason, and I think it's a lot of people who are not used to playing with sunglasses, they say that it changes a little bit their perception, their optics a little bit. Yeah. And for me, it was like whenever I had sunglasses and I looked down, it was like almost like I was tripping in the sand. Because it like almost felt like, I don't know, it made it bigger or something. But like it wasn't, the deaf perception was a little bit different. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, I cannot play with sunglasses. Now I cannot go without sunglasses. But it took me a little bit to adapt that like I'm actually wearing sunglasses. Because the perception of what I was seeing was so different. Yeah. Uh, and I just couldn't, couldn't get a hold of it. But then I forced myself a little bit. And now it's like I could almost not play without it. <laughs> and then your body adapted to that. Like yeah. lens change or whatever yeah. it might be. Because yeah. I've... Uh, actually, I've only played with cheap sunglasses. I don't feel they give that that effect. But sometimes when I borrow people's like uh, mm -hmm. more fancy ones, I can sometimes feel like, oh shit, this is making me dizzy or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or something. So yeah, maybe there's something to that. But you're saying that you at least get used to it after a while. Yeah, I just forced my like it was you sooner or later come to a game where you it's basically basically impossible to play without sunglasses because it's so bright or it's like you're looking right into mm -hmm. the sun. Uh, that then you're just forced yeah. and the funny thing is I also talked to Simon Dahl about this mm -hmm. and he was similar he couldn't play with sunglasses and then he mentioned it and I think it might have been even the Olympics it was just so bright and even the sand was so bright that he had to play with it and for me it was similar it was just like a national championship though I couldn't play without it I ended up having one of my best games and he said himself that like although he was not used to it he still played very well so mm -hmm. it was just like this, you didn't feel well, but it didn't really maybe affect your performance that much. Okay. Um, but after that, he started, he said he started playing with, I think, start sunglasses, but don't ask him. Uh, but for me, it was then I started playing more often. So it was a little bit like sometimes I was using it as an excuse. I'm not performing because I cannot see well. Uh -huh. But I think it took me maybe like a month and then it was, yeah. Okay. That's and then it was really good. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so... Are there some things that stick out to you extra, like of things that you have changed your mind about in the latest years? Is there, or something where you got a deeper understanding or? Um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the things that I'm trying to do nowadays in training, I think not all of it I was trying to do 10 years ago. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, uh, by let's say going around and uh, uh, having different coaches and uh, training in different environments, I think the picture has crystallized a lot more and a lot more in depth on what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. Are these secrets that you want to keep to yourself or, or do you, are some of them? No, I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's, not, a big, uh, it's not a big secret. Uh, so, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an interesting topic in itself. Like, I've, I've talked with different people on this podcast and some people think that, oh, there's, there's no secrets. You should, you should just explain everything. And some people say that, no, it's actually good for the sport if we keep some secrets and, and make... Uh, you know, like top players should should keep their secrets from other top players because it gives them an advantage. Yeah, but uh, I don't think there's like a, yeah, but there's going to be differences. So, you know, like if we go back to uh, passing, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess one of the biggest basic questions in passing is it going to be if you always want to get your body behind the ball mm-hmm. or if you want to pass on the side. Yeah. So I don't know. If, if that was like a topic for you or not. Yeah, it definitely has been something I've been thinking about. Okay. My thinking nowadays is uh, it's kind of like the, the setting. Like, yeah, if it's an easy ball and you can get your body behind it, then, then sure. But a lot of times it's not, it's not realistic. Okay. But uh, then also becomes a question. So where, where is this line between easy enough and not, not easy enough that you switch from one to the other? That's that's a good good question. Uh, yeah. In one way, I would say it comes by experimentation and seeing, like trying to get behind the ball uh, as much as possible, and and by by experience seeing and learning what type of serves it's not possible mm. uh, doing with anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it becomes like a. So, if, but you're saying that passing on the side is a bit harder. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, not necessarily, but passing, passing when the ball is too high towards your chest mm-hmm. or too short, mm-hmm. that's harder for sure, mm-hmm. according to me. Mm-hmm. Because there comes a point when you cannot reach the ball anymore mm-hmm. when, because it's in front of you. Or you cannot get out of the way. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, this is for me the, the biggest one. Uh, I... Th- uh, on float serves, this is, I think, the biggest one for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the side to side is, is not mm-hmm. so bad to adapt to, but, mm-hmm. but when it comes, when it dives down or, or, or rises up, that's. Mm-hmm. The, does that make sense? Yeah, but it's still, you know, it's still then like, if you don't think that passing on the side is, uh, for example, uh, tougher then why do you even choose to, you know, you could also take the easy ones on the side and then you, doesn't matter how difficult or easy it is, you always just pass on the side because, you know, it doesn't, yeah. make, doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So why do you have a two-stage process, you know? So, and I think it's always going to depend, you know, obviously if you're shorter, uh, it becomes a little bit easier because even if you're passing on the side, it's not, it's, um, it's not that far away from your body. So if you're yeah. somebody who's two meters and 10 and you pass the ball on the side, Obviously, you know, it's a bigger distance from you away. Yeah. So it becomes a little bit harder, but... Um. Yeah, I, I think, okay, now when you, when you say it this way, I think, because, <clears throat> so bump setting has a higher requirement for accuracy than, than passing. 
yes. service if you just sort of need to get to a somewhat good position so someone can set you. Uh, the better the position that's is. That's debatable again. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the better the position is, the yeah. better. Yeah. But but you can still play inside out even on a semi bad yes. service eve yeah. if you have a good setter. Yeah. Uh, but in the long term, you're probably going to lose because of that as well. Of of course, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so of course, always strive for, for the best. So if there's a free ball coming over, I yeah. think it's easier to have this good accuracy if you take it in the center. That's mm -hmm. my experience, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, so therefore, move your legs to the position. But mm -hmm. then, the <laughs> then if it's uh, if it's a more difficult serve, at least my aim at this point in my career is to make the ball playable, mm -hmm. uh, which is make it good enough so that my setter, my partner, can mm -hmm. set the ball. Yeah. Uh, but for example, now because I know that the easy balls, for example, you're gonna try to get behind it. I might just play, if I have to play a free ball against you, I might just play it long on the back line. So you really have to work hard to get there and it throws off your, uh, your whole approach because you're gonna have to work so much more to get back, for example. So then the free ball might not actually be that easy anymore. That's a good point, that's yeah. a good point. And that could be a strategy against someone that thinks like that, mm -hmm. uh, actually. Yeah. Now when you, when you say that, I actually think that I don't follow my advice there and I think I do turn around and, yeah. uh, and get the ball up. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not actually sure how I do in those. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, and I think we have, sometimes we have those uh, general, like we're trying to teach somebody, for example, to get behind the ball, uh, but we're not really considering what actually happens in the game. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, I think there's a little bit more of a general principles that we, we need to stick to. And, you know, when we talk, I think a lot of it is also with the visual. Um, it's related, so it's, it's hard to say. But for example, when you said, okay, what am I focusing on uh, when I'm passing? So obviously I wanna have the platform facing towards the target. And then, you know, um, I wanna get there with a simple and uh, basic move as possible. Mm -hmm. and um, I don't even try to differentiate between an easy and a hard ball. It's just like, you know, it should be the same move for regardless what the ball is for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I can, if I'm taking it on the side or if I take it wherever, I can always play the ball there. It's just about the platform facing that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, don't, I, don't differ, I don't try to differentiate between them. Yeah. Uh, Do you differentiate between topspin and float? Um, well, what's, what differentiates between them for me is a little bit more that they have different outcomes. Um, so if somebody is, um, you know, going for a jump surf, mm -hmm. uh, the curve is more predictable Yeah. because it has a spin. So it's easier for you to tell where it's going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, if somebody's using a spin surf, in most situations, they're going to try to put, because of that, because it's a more predictable serve, they put more power on it. Mm -hmm. uh, by them putting more power on it, uh, the ball will hardly ever go short. Mm -hmm. So, and if they do try to go short, they're going to take a different flight curve. So again, you can see it earlier. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so you basically, can adapt to like, those. yeah, as, basically, as soon as it's a jump serve or a spin serve, uh, the ball is usually going to go between six and eight meters. Mm -hmm. on my side right mm -hmm. because they're putting power for it on it so it's the ball it's almost impossible for it to land before that mm -hmm. 
So unless it's, if it's into the wind, maybe, but yeah, with a Wilson. <laughs> yeah, oh, it could be a Mikasa as well. It doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, so you know, like yeah, obviously, but in yeah, in general. So now we're talking in general. Uh, the serves are gonna become somewhere on, towards my back line. So all I have to do, in a sense, is intercept the flight ball of that ball. So it becomes a little bit more similar to a defense. I just have to go, move a little bit left and right mm -hmm. and make sure my platform is in that flight curve of the ball. Yeah. So I think, I think it was Karch who talked about, you know, sort of if there's a laser, if you imagine like a red laser light going from the server towards the end, I just have to come put my platform into uh, that intercept that yeah intercept yeah. that yeah. and if it's a jump serve i'm i'm hardly ever going to have to move forward because they're putting power and the more power they put the less the ball is going to drop mm -hmm. so i basically just have to do this so technically it's it becomes easier but what makes it harder is that they put so much power on it that i don't have much time to do this exactly yeah and with the float serves float serves they have more outcomes because they're not as powerful so, and the ball is floating a little bit, so it could take a turn, so it's a little bit more unpredictable. So it could also drop somewhere around five, four meters maybe, mm -hmm. so I have more to cover. Mm -hmm. For example, if they do an underarm surf, you know, it has even more outcomes because the yeah. ball is slower. So it might be really short, it might be right behind the, the, the net or it might be on the baseline. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I will really have to move my legs more um, to, to get to the ball. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, you know, my stance for a jump serve is probably going to be a bit lower uh, than it's going to be on a float. Mm -hmm. um, so that's already, an, you know, what, for, for a float surf, I get more ready to move my legs than I am on, on a jump surf. On yeah. a jump surf, it's a little bit more of a, I don't know if this is a proper expression and it's probably going to come out now wrong, but it's a little bit more of a body shift. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, it's, I mean, you have to sort of imagine it a little bit more like that. But so it, there are certain differences, you know, of course, passing a, a jump serve or passing a float serve. Yeah. And I think it's just a general tendency from more players to take a float serve on the side is because of the things that you mentioned earlier. It's, uh, you know, it can hit you if, if it's a good float serve, it will float a bit more. It's a bit more unpredictable. So technically for me, it wouldn't have mattered if I can get a perfect position to it, but depth perception is a little bit of the hardest things to do. Absolutely. So if, if I get behind the ball, it's harder to, to have accurate depth perception. So mm -hmm. that's why most of the players, they choose to take it a little bit on the side. Because of the visuals. Because first, because of the visual, because you're watching it a little bit from the side and it's easier to determine where the ball is going to go. Mm -hmm. And the other one is also that at the end, you can have a little bit more room for making minor adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it's an easy one, it doesn't matter. But on the harder ones, you're just going to have, you know, it's going to be a little bit easier. There's even players who never want to take the ball in the center in the center yeah uh, just because yeah because on the side you can go above your chest level in a even sense even like that but it, it doesn't have to be that extreme it can just be the difference between you know passing at hip line or chest line basically you mm -hmm. know it could just be this and if you're having it right in front of you this could be a giant difference yeah if it hits your chest it's already you have no control exactly so um yeah so it's a combination of things and i think understanding that it makes easier decisions yeah um, so that's why it's also, yeah, I think if, 
Yeah. That makes that makes complete sense. Uh, yeah, the, the way I've thought about top spins, obviously you maybe saw the other day that I don't have a lot of experience in receiving top spin serves. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the way I think about it is also like it comes, it's easier to predict, but it comes faster. So mm-hmm. maybe your body is more in the shape. Maybe it's closer to the shape that it will be when you actually touch the ball. So maybe arms are a little bit more stretched out already before. So you just sort of move them into mm-hmm. to intercept rather than, than mm-hmm. maybe I would have be more in a runner's posi- position with bent elbows on, on a float serve so that I can move really efficiently and then sort of... Uh, yeah, that's I think it's a little bit of a discussion of like how many different outcomes can you expect again. So if you're mm-hmm. saying, so if I'm expecting the ball to come to my sides as well, um, and also you said, you said yourself it could be even above your shoulders. So that means I have this giant area around me that I have to cover. And the more my arms are straight, the, the more, more they're going to move yeah. like a golf swing. Exactly. But the more they're bent, the more you can go directly there and close them together. Mm-hmm. So it's again, I mean, uh, and I think it depends a little bit again on the level, but... Um, you know, I think in general terms, it's I think there's a little bit of benefit of having them slightly bent. Yeah. Because if there's somebody coming with a, with a jump surf and they might hit me, you know, somewhere like let's say to my left side around shoulder height mm-hmm. or at least my chest height. If I have my arms straight in front of me before I get them to chest height to the side. Yeah. And then it will be also hard for me to stop them. Mm-hmm. And it might turn into this golf swing. Yeah. But it will also be so it will be a longer route and might even be harder to stop. Yeah. So it might just be more beneficial to have them bent and go directly there, you know. So yeah, it just depends. I, I completely agree, and uh, I have my mine bent basically all of the time. Yeah. Now, what's interesting here is, so you mentioned uh, uh, Bjorn's partner, uh, Simon Dahl, yeah. uh, exactly. Um, for the listeners, they played the two Olympics back in the days for Sweden, mm-hmm. um, and. Simon had this interesting theory. So he, you said on top spin serves, maybe you take a maybe you take a step back mm-hmm. uh, on the court because because you're not expecting those short serves to really come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Simon's Simon said he he was basically good at taking these high balls where you sort of spin around and take mm-hmm. above your shoulder level, mm-hmm. and and that sort of he does in combination with taking a step forward mm-hmm. uh, on the court because then that's going to happen more often. Of course. Uh, but actually, in a sense, if you take that step backwards, maybe then you can a little bit expect less of those over your shoulder yeah. things happening, which could maybe, it, yeah. maybe, but if it's a problem to get your elbows out in time. Because well, I mean, I think this is a little bit really of an individual thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you would ask the general beach volleyball population, how many people are really good at taking the ball high you know, shoulder height or even higher, uh, most of them would probably say they're not as good at. Absolutely. So, you know, for them, it doesn't make that much sense to go on spin serves forward and then struggle because most of the balls go there. Yeah. This was his individual strength. So I have full support. If you feel well in this, do it, you know. Um, But yeah, so I have no problem with him doing this, but this is, you know, his, his specific thing, let's say. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But uh, if I struggle with those, and let's say a lot of people, when they get hit high over the shoulder, they get maybe like even aced. 
So, you know, why would you want to take the same stance? Yeah. So, but maybe to sort of go along on this theme is the more, like, let's say you go now from somebody who is trying to take the ball uh, midline in front of them mm-hmm. to somebody who takes them on the side. So just if you put your arms in front of you, you know, depending on your height and the length of your arms, you're going to be taking the ball like a meter in front of you. Yeah. But as soon as you start going on the side, you're going to be taking the ball maybe like 20, 30 centimeters in front of you. That's true. Yeah. So as soon as you even change the, your goal, yeah. you should also change your position a little bit because obviously you're not going to be taking the ball at the same, mm-hmm. you know, so. That's a good point. So you're going to see that people, for example, who are trying to take the ball on the side or who always get out of the way, they're possibly standing a little bit closer to the net. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about giant steps or leaps here. No, but here. just a hint. Yeah. yeah, but just maybe a half a step closer to the net because they're going to, you know, going to take a ball at a different, mm-hmm. a different point. Yeah. So it's, it's all interconnected. It is, it is, yeah. And I think it's just, I think it's really good to have this conversation because it's, it makes people start thinking more in like several layers. Mm-hmm. Because it is, it is very interconnected. So, so just to, and that's why I like also arguing against my, my own arguments sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it's just good. Like, like I, I, mostly I teach the bent elbows and, and I do it myself. But mm-hmm. I also like thinking like, what are the reasons for having straight elbows? Mm-hmm. And, and I like being able to give the arguments for that also. Mm-hmm. So, so just in that sort of manner, I, I hope I'm not misphrasing Simon here. Uh, but but I, I, th- I, I don't know. We, I, <laughs> we I, don't expect, know. <laughs> I actually spoke to Simon quite a lot, but uh, well, I don't think we had that many volleyball technique conversations. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I had uh, I got I got a one on one from him okay. uh, on passing back in the days. Okay. So uh, so his his theory back then was, and I think this is interesting to think about. His theory was that short balls that dive in front of you. Mm-hmm you simply cannot take. They will always be aces uh, because you cannot reach them. Okay. But he said, but these high balls, it's possible for you to learn. Yeah. So, so yes, it's, it might be challenging, uh, it might be difficult, but it's still possible to learn. So it's, it's, what is, it's, it's about learning something that's difficult versus trying to mm. learn something that's actually not possible to learn. And <laughs> yeah, and I think it also depends a little bit what, what the opponent is gonna be able to do. So, I mean, obviously, Simon played at a very high level. I mean, two-time Olympian. I don't know how many top 10 finishes on the world tour. Uh, so, I'm sure he's, he's had some uh, really good opponents there who could probably, you know... And I think for a while he even played on the big court. Yeah, yeah. So, it might be that it was also, you know, they had to cover a bigger court. I, I have no idea. But possibly, this is, yeah. it's possibly also related to that. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I agree. But nowadays, if you look at like the jump servers, how many of them like actually incorporate a short ball? Probably not many. Yeah. So, and like there are some like, like for example, the Austrian Alex Horst, he, he has basically every serve. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think also a lot of it becomes, you know, actually like if he does a short one, he has to take power off. Uh, yes. So you do have a little bit more time and the ball immediately takes a different flight curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are actually seeing nowadays passers, you know, like going or defending jump serves that are hit the net tape and fall short and still getting them. Yeah. So it's hard to argue that, you know, the short one is now impossible. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a good point. It could have been a thought from even all the way back from the big court. Could have been. Uh, could have been, and and I think in the in the end, I think it's good for anyone that likes to think about this and decide what's best for them. Is is in a sense, it's all about statistics. Like what like. If you, okay, let's say that there is one out of 10 balls that goes so short you cannot take it. So you lose one of 10 balls automatically. Mm-hmm. But if you then take a step forwards and, and you get three balls up high and you can only take one of those three balls, so you're actually losing 10 out of, no, no you're losing two out of 10 rather than one out of 10, then it's still a bad strategy, even if you listen to Simon. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, and I also... Uh, for, I'll give you an example. So last summer I played on that the German uh, sort of a winter tour, uh, what they had. The, um, and we played against Valkenhorst Winter. And their strategy was for both of them to bump jump serves. Mm-hmm. So they were both just going for it. And I, ac- I actually, like, I don't think there was a single ball that landed anywhere else than between 7 and 8 meters. Except if it maybe hit the tape. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they ever went to like a float surf. I don't think they ever went into just rolling the short one. But, you know, for me, it was just an obvious adjustment to make uh, that I took a step backwards. And, you know, because there was absolutely none of the balls, maybe an accidental one, maybe a bad toss or something. But out of the, you know, two, three sets that we played, they were just bombing jump, jump surf. So for me, I took a step backwards. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, and at what it actually do, did, it, it worked for us. You know, we got aced less than the other teams that played against them. Yeah. Um, I didn't say we won, but, uh, you know, obviously that was a one good adjustment that we made. Yeah. If they would start combining in short serves, then I would have to think about something else. Like, can I see the, the short serve coming early enough and taking those steps forward? Uh, maybe repositioning my legs a little bit, you know, because obviously if I... However, I stand also predetermines what my fast movements are. And, you know, if I have my feet parallel, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's easier for me to go side to side. But mm-hmm. if I put one leg in more in front, then it's easier for me to also go mm, okay. stuff like that, yeah. you know. But then also it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Um, yeah, in training, I want to be able to do all of them. But in a game, I just, you know, they're only bombing serves. Of course, I'm going to take a step back. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I'm now realizing when I'm listening to this and, and your thoughts is that I think one thing that I need to do for my own game is is I think my head thinks that everyone is very sneaky and can change their tactics very quickly. Uh, so so I don't think I look for patterns enough mm-hmm. because I think that they're not stupid enough to do patterns. <laughs> I think it's but, also, yeah, but I think yeah. in reality patterns happen a lot more than my mind wants to, wants to do and I should adapt to those patterns yeah and even if you look at like some of the top world tour players they have patterns and people try to play a certain strategy against them you mm-hmm. know and um, you know there might be a player that is very dominant on the diagonal and they're I mean people are going to decide differently they're going to try to put a block against him they're going to try to do a defense against him on the diagonal, or they might even try to double. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are going to take different approaches to that, but, you know... Do-do. Here I am, Alex. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was no good place to, to cut this episode off. Um, so this is where I cut it off. Uh, I hope I didn't uh, disturb you right in some very interesting thought processes. 
but in the next uh, episode, uh, this con- this conversation will continue, and I will replay a little bit of the last minute here in the beginning of next episode, also. So I hope this has been um, an enjoyable listen. I if you if this is the first episode you ever heard on this podcast, then welcome here. I hope this podcast is going to be here for you to learn a lot more about beach volleyball and uh, for you guys that have listened before i hope that this has continued to (laughs) deliver what the previous episodes has delivered to you as well so please share this episode to other volley nerds other people that might find this valuable and uh, yeah all the other things as well the more you guys uh, share and help me with this project, the faster I get to a point where I can create more of this content for you guys. So there's a YouTube channel and there's a Facebook group and, and everything. Follow, subscribe and stuff like that. And um, yeah, cool. See you in the next episode and uh, have fun until then. Bye. Bye.